I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast for a budget special. So how was it for you? A total package worth about 17.75 billion euro which was the biggest budget in the history of the state and a major giveaway was the centrepiece of today's speeches in the Dáil. If this was even last year, it would be a cause for celebration. But as we know, it's all about battling through the COVID and all of this spending is an attempt to ensure that the economy can stay afloat and as many jobs and businesses as possible can be saved. To discuss the highlights and maybe the lowlights of the budget, I'm joined by the Irish Examiner political editor Danny McConnell and economist Jim Power. Jim, if I could start with you. Um, It's a very different approach, Jim, isn't it, that's being taken in tackling a looming recession this time around? Okay, it is, Mick. Um, I was thinking about it, I think, in as far back as I can remember, uh, which at this stage is way too many years um, I have never before seen a counter-cyclical fiscal policy being pursued here because back 10 years ago when our economy was on the ground, we were increasing taxes, we were cutting spending, and we were just exacerbating the downturn. This time around, um, we have an economy that, or at least parts of the economy that are struggling very badly. Other parts are doing well. Uh, but the government stepped in with the largest ever fiscal stimulus package that we've seen in the history of the state. In my view, it's exactly what the economy requires at this stage. I say that for a few reasons. One is that, you know, obviously a lot of businesses in retail, in hospitality, in the the whole tourism area that were viable last March were forced to shut down or have been forced to operate under very strict protocols over the last six or seven months. And it's essential that when we come out the other end of this, that as many of those businesses as possible are still around to pick up the pieces and to grow our economy, particularly the tourism part of our economy again. So I think it was vital to support. The second point is that we are not alone. Every country in the European Union, with the blessing of the EU in terms of relaxing the fiscal rules and also... um, with the blessing of the European Central Bank, which is using bond buying or quantitative easing to push bond yields down, um, we're able to borrow as much as we want to borrow at the moment at record lower levels of interest. So I I think in all of those circumstances, there was no other choice other than to throw the kitchen sink at the sectors of the economy that are in difficulty. And, you know, have no doubt about it, I think that uh, all of the, well, most of the measures that were introduced today were very sectorally focused. And if you look at the publication of the pandemic unemployment payment statistics on Monday, the latest up to the 13th of October or to the 12th of October, they show the sectors of the economy that are under most pressure at the moment. So accommodation, food services is top of the pile. 
Second is retail, non-grocery retail. So those are the sort of sectors uh, that got serious support in today's budget, and I think it's appropriate. Jim, one thing in that respect, um, Pierre Stardy and Sinn Féin were suggesting we should have spent more What's your opinion in that, that the fact that interest rates are so low, and like obviously we don't want to get into a scenario whereby we're in serious debt altogether, but could they have spent more? Did they spend enough? Um, I don't think they should have spent more, to be perfectly honest. Um, I, I think it was important that, okay, in 2019, this year's budget deficit is going to be around 21.6 billion, okay, 6.2% GDP. Um, for 2021, they have targeted 20.5 billion, 5.7% of GDP. Two very big numbers. But I think symbolically, it's important that the deficit next year is going to be lower than the deficit this year. Um, I think if we went for a much more aggressive package and we were talking about a 7 or 8 or 9% of GDP deficit, I think that might start to cause markets to worry about Ireland's fiscal situation. So I, I think symbolically it's important to have the deficit on a downward trajectory. And at the end of the day, and it was quite obvious from both ministers today, there's a huge level of flexibility built into all of this. Um, you know, the various schemes, they're going to continue to monitor them. And if economic circumstances next year dictate a change one way or the other, well, that change would be made. So I think that sort of flexibility is very, very important. Whereas if we'd gone with a big package today, a much bigger, it is a big package. If we'd gone for a bigger package next year, um, I, I, I think it would remove some of that possibility. So I, I don't, quite bluntly, I don't agree that we should have borrowed more, that we should have thrown more money at the problem. Let's see, We've it's, it's a record fiscal injection. Let's see how it works. And if it does need to be altered and changed, let's do so. And I think it's important also to recognise that today's budget is the third part of a trilogy, a fiscal trilogy. Uh, we had the first part in March with the pandemic unemployment payments. We had the second part in July with the fiscal stimulus package. And then we had the third part today. Um, Perhaps we'll have a fourth and a fifth next year. Who knows? But for the no. moment, I think there's enough please, done. Please, no more, no more with any bit of luck yeah, at that stage. Danny, um, politically, as a political budget in terms of uh, people getting kudos and that sort of thing, what's your assessment of it? Yeah, it's a funny budget, Mick, because, you know, normally with a giveaway budget like this, you, you'd have ministers jumping around the place and saying, am I the best man since and a woman since, sliced, since the uh, invention of sliced bread? But it, it's a very muted reaction to it overall. I think what, what you're pointing to and what you're seeing is a lot of people basically saying, you know, we're getting all this money essentially to stand still. Um, you know, there's a lot of people saying it's a meh budget, like it, there's nothing, there's nothing really to kind of be overly excited about. Um, I will agree with Jim that like the sums of money that are involved here are, are eye-watering. You know, when you see a four billion in, injection in, into health, on top of you know multi overruns year on year, uh, a budget that's way in excess of, of of where it was even five or six years ago, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's pretty staggering when you see the amount of money that's housing. It's staggering, and but. What clearly is coming to the fore now, Mick, is yes, we've seen a massive cash, cash injection 
uh, to to a lot of the big spending departments already. What we're not seeing is a very strong uh, output in terms of service delivery. We pay an awful lot of money for pretty poor service by and large when it comes to public service delivery in terms of housing, health, uh, education, uh, etc. Not saying that individual people do great work in those sectors, but overall, I think the taxpayer gets a pretty raw deal in terms of quality and, and uh, delivery. Um, so, you know, you know, there, there are pretty minor gripes kind of from the opposition around, you know, lack of movement in terms of childcare, you know, no, no increase for the pensioners. You know, there's some people like saying, why wasn't there a movement on income tax for high earners and all that kind of stuff? Um, but by and large, there really is little enough for the opposition to sink their teeth in because money has literally gone everywhere. Yeah. Two of the things you mentioned there, Danny, um, four billion for health. Is there, in terms of uh, taking advantage of a crisis to some extent, will this mean that we're able to bring forward quicker than, say, the case might have been expected prior to the pandemic? Slauncha care, for instance, is, is that going to advance that case? And in housing, is, is this money to pump prime, is that going to advance the case in providing particularly social housing and tackling the, that element of the crisis? In health, without question, uh, I, I would think that there's a move to try and, one, to address the shortfall in capacity, particularly in acute beds and ICU beds and all that kind of stuff. I think what what, what they were able to do under COVID was massively increase the number uh, of, of sort of high-intensity beds. But on a temporary basis, I think what they're looking to do is, is, is increase that on a permanent basis, and I think they're, they're able to do that. It was struck, I, I was in with the Department of Public Expenditure yesterday, when, you know, we were taking pictures of both ministers before the budget and I was on the way out one, one official did say to me you know it's funny how every department was almost wrapping the cover of COVID around them in order to try and get more money out of the department this year and to a large degree they've probably they've to a certain degree the big fight I suppose will be next year when deeper try and claw a lot of that money back or will they be in a position to claw that money back so the real it was a far less contentious budget this year in terms of getting claiming money. The fight will be next year, I suppose, when they're, when they're looking for the money back. In terms of housing, you know, there's been some criticism from the opposition that this is essentially a reheat of stuff that's already been announced before by Owen Murphy previously. Uh, I think there is some amusement that the, the targets or the housing targets aren't more ambitious. Uh, while I suppose you're, you know, the headline figures are you're talking about 12,000. Uh, uh, new homes of which 9,000 they're aiming will be direct bills and that's a big emphasis I did an interview with Michael McGrath a couple of weeks ago he was making this plea or play that you know uh, this huge shift of emphasis to directing direct bills from local authorities and that would be a sea change because obviously that stopped about 20 or 30 years ago local authorities just stopped building houses so it remains to be seen whether or not you know, now that they have the money will they be able to do it because I think what I my experience of recent budgets is you know has, has been the money hasn't been an issue like the, the headline pot of money has been in place but actually getting you know turf you know turned and, and boots on the ground and hard hats you know on site has proven to be very difficult and there clearly has been a standoff between local authorities and the central department of local government for whatever reason there just has been this inability for them to, to kind of work together so you know that that'll be you know come of next year Dara Bryan will he'll be able to prove himself that he's uh, in a position to actually deliver with the money that he's been given or he'll be he'll fail at the way Owen Murphy did in terms of delivery yeah Jim the other thing and I hate mentioning this word again but I mean as the day beckons closer there's no escaping it Brexit um, is there sufficient um, provision made in this budget for what at the moment perhaps is looking like a no deal or a skimpy deal okay Mick um it, I suppose it's, it's, it's important to point out that 
the whole um, economic arithmetic behind the budget was predicated on two very important assumptions. One is that there would not be a vaccine in 2021. The second, that Britain would exit the transition mechanism on the 31st of December without a trade deal and that WTO trading arrangements would apply from the 1st of January. Um, so I, I think there are two sensible assumptions to make. Um, time will tell if they're the correct assumptions to make, but they are the prudent, sensible ones to make at this juncture. Um, if you look at Brexit, clearly, and there was a report done by, or a study done by the London School of Economics recently for the Irish government, showing just the sectoral impact of Brexit, and the part of the economy that's clearly very, very heavily exposed is the agri-food sector, okay? There is a recovery fund in place of whatever, 3.4 billion. Um, I suspect a lot of that money will be directed down towards those companies that do suffer in the event of a, um, a hard Brexit. So I, I, I say again, I think for the moment, this is a sort of a holding exercise. Um, the resources are being put in place to deal with the worst eventuality in terms of Brexit. And um, so that, that funding is there and that funding will be applied. So I'd have to say again at this juncture, you know, I'd be quite happy that um, the funding has been put in place to help um, Irish companies deal with the fallout from Brexit. And I think it was also significant today, uh, Mr. Donoghue did say that they were now, you know, looking at accessing EU funding to help Ireland deal with number one, COVID, number two, with the Brexit situation. So, you know, I, I would expect actually that if we do hit January next year and WTO trading arrangements apply, um, I would expect both domestic and external funding from the European Union to be applied to the problem to help the companies in most difficulty. So nice. I'm happy enough in that regard at the moment. Um, I hope, I hope actually that this discussion is academic, that we will get some sort of watered down compromise deal over the coming weeks. And I've always hoped, I suppose, that sanity would eventually prevail uh, on the UK side of the water. There's no guarantee of that. But, you know, I, I suppose what we've been doing all along is planning for the worst, hoping for the best. And yeah. I think that's where we still are, you know. Yeah, you might be you might be a bit optimistic there, Jim, in terms of sanity in Boris Johnson's uh, cabinet. But you'd never know. We, we we live in eternal hope. Listen, just turning to tax, very little, as far as I can see, movement. There's, well, to use the phrase, there's a bit of Mickey Mouse stuff, but there's nothing major in terms of changes in tax. I presume I would suggest, with the obvious exception of the carbon tax. You, you remember Mick um, the, the that election we had in February. And yeah. if you remember the debate before that election was the balance between expenditure and taxation in budgetary policy. Yeah. And the sort of view really was it's two thirds expenditure, one third taxation. Today's package, you know, 17.4 billion expenditure, 270 million in net tax package. So <laughs> it was, you know, it's an extraordinary um, imbalance. And it reflects, uh, you know, the sort of quandary that we're in as an economy at the moment. Um, 
on the taxation side, there wasn't a lot. We had the um, the carbon tax, okay, and the other changes to VRT. And in fact, if there's one sector of the economy that can justifiably feel disappointed and aggrieved tonight, it's the motor industry. You know, that industry is on its knees and has been basically since the Brexit in the middle of 2016. Um, and now, you know, the prospect on the 1st of January of the average family car increasing by a thousand um, in price is really going to damage an industry that's already fragile. Um, but anyway, it, it is what it is, and that's the green part of the budget being delivered. Um, the other tax changes were that, that we had the uh, VAT rate cut for the hospitality sector, you know, 13.5% to 9 Um, I was an advocate for that, and I'm a fan of that. I think it was the correct thing to do. Um, I believed that the cut in the VAT rate from 23 to 21% in the July stimulus was a mistake. Why, Jim? I felt that a much more targeted, sectorally targeted approach was required, okay? Yeah. And Pascal Donahoe did say today, um, well, reading between the lines, he's basically saying that, that the VAT rate will now go back up to 23% when it expires at the end of February next year. So that, I think that sectorally focused VAT cut is, is what we need to be doing. And um, because that 23 to 21 cut in the battery rate was very expensive. I think it was about 460, 470 million. That was the cost of it. Quite a bit of money without having that much real impact on sectors, okay? So, um, and there was little else on the tax side. They tweaked the USC and they tweaked yeah. the PRSI threshold to prevent uh, lower minimum wage workers from going into a higher rate of USC and PRSI. So that that was good, but minimal. But this definitely is a spend, spend, spend budget. It, as as you say, like two two to one in, as you were saying, uh, prior to last election, and now it's about five by seventeen, whatever that is to one in terms of just is unbelievable. Um, da- Danny. Um, was there any suggestion anywhere, might be throwing this out there, on the basis of uh, an expected K-shaped recovery, on the basis of the way tax receipts have gone despite the pandemic, of any rises to taxation, particularly in the higher income bracket? Certainly from the government side, no, Mick. I mean, it was very clear from, from early out in September that the, like, the sort of increases to income tax were sort of off the, off the agenda. There was certainly a call from the opposition earlier on today that that there should have been a kind of a view to to maybe look at taxing higher income earners who have done well out of the the pandemic. Like the pharmaceutical sector in particular has proven itself to be very robust uh, during the pandemic. Uh, but clearly, government has basically said that's not a course they want to go down in the middle of a pandemic. So they 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 haven't gone down that route. I'd agree with Jim. I think one of the, the like. It usually takes a few hours on budget night for sort of the main issues or the main gripes with the budget mm. to sort of seep out. The the hit on motor tax is one that's really beginning to kind of I think kind of uh, kind of raise its head. Like like you have the you basically have the prospect of a kind of a, a hardworking low income family driving a sort of a ten or twelve year old diesel car, two two liter diesel. You know, with the prospect of paying three hundred quid more in in motor tax every year, which is pretty steep and pretty sizable. Like so. A number of politicians have raised that particular issue with us saying that it that's inequitable and essentially you're you're only punishing the poor by doing that. But again, it's the green hand and 
much, you know, so you, you have this mishmash in, in not trying to punish the poor, but while trying to move Ireland to a more sustainable carbon carbon footing. Um, so that, that's one that may kind of raise its head further in, in the hours and, and days ahead. Um, but, but clearly, you know, they, there is a sense overall that, you know, on the tax front, it was steady as you go. Um, with with much more of the action kind of happening on the spending side, as Jim said, like the imbalance. You know, you know, for years covering budgets, we were talking about this: the argument between two to one or three to one. You know, this is must be thirty five or thirty six to one or something yeah. or in relation this time around. So it's uh, so yeah, so that imbalance is very clear. Um, but you know, on the taxation side, it, you know, Pascal Donoghue had a, a relatively quiet day, and you know, not much news to to give out today. All the action was pretty much on 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 Michael McGrath's side. An issue that was very big in the general election and. Not not clarity, but I suppose further uh, fog that was brought today was Danny D uh, raising the proposed, as it was, raising the pension age to 67. That now has been put back. So does that mean that presumably it's at 66 and there is, is there, a, let, let me guess, there is a review, I presume, to decide when it'll go up further? Mick, you, uh, yourself, myself, and Jim are long enough friends. Like you know, you know, you can know what a review means. And the, yeah, yeah. And the, the, the political, uh, the political uh, machinations around a review. Yeah. So basically, they deferred that decision, which they had to pay about two hundred and sixty or two hundred seventy million to basically kind of to factor that cost in. Um, but ultimately, that they, you know, it was just seen as too politically toxic to kind of go down that route. Given it became. Uh, front and centre, you know, largely to Mary Lou MacDonald and Sinn Féin's insistence, they, they put that issue front and centre at the start of the general election campaign and stole a march, I think, on the rest of the parties and forced them into kind of backing down on, on that issue. So, um, you know, so I think while we've long heard about the Ireland's pension ticking time bomb, you know, it, this political generation seemed like they're quite happy to park it at another little bit longer and, and, and let that, that time bomb tick away. Jim, in relation to that issue of the pension age, how long do you reckon it is sustainable that they continue to, I suppose you could say, mess around in terms of what the, the retirement age is? People who are approaching it, quite obviously, don't view it as that. But there's no question, in the long term, there's a demographic issue and we were supposed to be well into tackling it now and it keeps being postponed. Make a couple of years ago, I had the pleasure and distinction of presenting a paper at the annual meeting of the Irish Gerontological Society, okay, and it's it's a scientific conference that's held every year that looks at scientific developments in Alzheimer's and all that. So what was I doing there? <laughs> they asked me to take a look at the Irish demographics, and I put the slide up, you know, showing the various age profiles and how they were likely to evolve to 2050 and 2100, and you could see the mouths drop open. I mean, the demographic time bomb here is is extraordinary you know the aging of the population is extraordinary over the coming years and that has a number of implications you know one of the implications is obviously um, huge pressure on spending on care for older people and for health and the second piece of course is pensions and um, I, I think and I I really really got annoyed angry frustrated um, during the election campaign back in February of this year um, about that whole pension issue. I mean, I, I think it's nuts. Um, I think we have to increase the pension age. There is no choice because we cannot afford the pension liability that's coming down the road. Well, we can afford it, provided we spend money on nothing else. You know, and, and of course, yeah. we've got to spend a lot of money on health and care for older people. So I, I, I just think we've got to get real 
about that pension situation. But obviously, it became a mass a massive political hot potato. Um, unfortunately, those um, the politicians who believe it's a good idea, you know, they backed off. You could call it uh, a massive dose of cowardice. But I suppose that's you know the reality of politics that an economist couldn't possibly understand. But um, I, I thought it was I thought it was a nuts debate to be honest. And you know it's well as Danny was saying there there is now um, a body set up to look at it. You know which means yeah. it's not going to happen. But no, it's 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 another massive um, financial liability. Another one for the long run, along with the debt from the recession. And, and as you said, Jim, you said they're, they're going to have to raise it. Well, if we had a conversation a number of years ago, we would have said they're going to have to charge for water. And that ain't happening either. So these things, I mean, but I absolutely I see your point, but it's, it has now become such a hot potato. I can't see anyone doing anything in the, um, in the immediate future. Danny, what else, anything else jump out at you there? Any possible time bombs or anything that uh, could lead to further controversy as you'd see it? Um, so nothing kind of a, a immediate make. I mean, the, the only sort of uh, slight bit of controversy today that's building up is the fact that Leo Varadkar was tweeting out elements of the budget before they were announced, which I thought it was, was not, not. Not, not really allowed, you know. So, uh, yeah, he spotted. I spotted him. He, he tweeted out the well, he confirmed the the four hundred eighty pup threshold for you know the self employed that can do a few days work every month before they kind of lose their pup. Uh, but it wasn't mentioned in Pascal Donoghue's speech, and uh, my yeah. dad hadn't yet mentioned it in his speech, so uh, he was a bit premature on that. But yet, uh, when when I was asking government representatives in relation to this earlier on, they seemed to kind of take a slightly casual attitude to saying, "Gosh, oh, sure, you know, it was all in the papers anyway, and all he was doing was just, you know, kind of getting his slant on it." But I mean, yet again, as we know, the Tonisha has form in relation to kind of being premature in, in announcing things. So, um, but other than that, in terms of the overall, you know, overriding. Uh, sort of size and, and tenor of the budget. You know, the crit- main criticism from Sinn Féin is that it's ambitious enough. Labour Party again saying it's not ambitious enough in certain areas, but yet yeah, generally agree with the kind of direction of travel. Um, but it's very hard, I'd say, for an opposition spokesperson, you know, to to criticise a budget when you're spending so much money. Literally every government minister went in, uh, got got an increase, a, large, a pretty sizable increase in their in their in their budgets. You know, you've extra garden numbers, you've extra teacher numbers, you've extra nurses, you've extra doctors. You've extra houses. Like, what else can you really complain about? You know what I mean? You know, of course, there will be nuances, and of course, you have to do your job and, and complain. But um, you know, when you're spending 17 billion plus more than you were last year, um, you know that money does extend a, a fair old chunk of the way. Yeah, Jim. One other thing to touch on. I see total capital expenditure will rise over 10 billion. I mean, that's. I mean, again, I say people like you have been singing that song for a long time that there needs to be more long term spending in terms of the, the the capital side of things. And again, I'm presuming that that's as a result of that's the silver lining in this horrible dark cloud of the uh, of the pandemic. It is, Mick, and it's it's quite extraordinary. Um, people may not have probably didn't notice that in the last couple of weeks, the Dions of fiscal austerity, the International Monetary Fund, um, produced a study or a report, uh, basically begging countries to spend more money on infrastructure and capital investment. Um, and basically saying you really do need to exploit this interest rate environment to build up the infrastructure in your economy. So I really welcome that capital expenditure program today. Uh, but unfortunately, as a country, we're still 
playing catch up because capital expenditure virtually died um, after the crash back 10 years ago for reasons which we can understand. But we are now... Political cowardice again, Jim. Political cowardice. Absolutely, Danny. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Uh, But we're now running faster and faster, trying to catch up, but at least we're running. So I think that's good because at the end of the day, um, and all of these things are interrelated in my view, um, you know, the one of the things that has saved the Irish economy this year and the public finances is the fact that the multinational sector has been doing so well. Um, it's paying so much corporation tax and it's also supporting so much employment. And you look at the chemical and pharma contribution to exports. That's really more than anything else what allowed Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath deliver the expansionary budget they delivered today. Um, but if you look at the challenges to foreign direct investment, you know, international corporation tax reform is coming down the tracks very, very quickly. Um, undoubtedly, over the next few years, Ireland is going to lose its relative corporate tax advantages because a lot of other countries will be matching us and some of our competitive advantage will be taken away. So we need to make sure we focus on the other stuff that makes FDI attractive in Ireland. So it's the quality of infrastructure, it's the quality of education, it's the quality of um, our hospitals, our health sector, all of that stuff. So I think capital investment um, of this magnitude is absolutely appropriate um, in the current circumstances. And I would love to see ongoing exponential growth in capital investment spending for the next decade at least until we bring you know, we, we, we correct a lot of the inadequacies in our infrastructure and so on. Just, and, and to both of you, I'll, I'll go to you first, Danny. Is there, is it possible, notwithstanding the dire circumstances we're in with the pandemic, to look at this as an opportunity within a crisis? And, and, and is that opportunity being taken to the best extent that it can be in this budget? Well, I would certainly think, Mick, there is definitely an opportunity. And I think that what I've been struck by the government's attitude this year is that, you know, there was a major sea change earlier this year in, in terms of respo- government response. We, we, we've often and traditionally seen governments being very slow to respond to crises, slow to get money into, into the pockets of businesses, slow to get money, you know, out in the public domain, you know, in terms of government measures. What we've seen today clearly or, or seen this year is they found a mechanism by way of the temporary wage subsidy scheme and the pandemic unemployment payment of getting money to the people very, very quickly. And that clearly was a success in keeping the, the economy afloat. And that's reflected in, in the far more resilient income tax receipts than, than they, they themselves were even expecting. Um, but what my big fear is that, you know, even with these rather enlarged budgets, you're going to see a lot of mishandling. I, you know, there were years under Bertie Hearn where budgets, you know, exploded. And what we saw were years later at the Public Accounts Committee were, you know, really dire kind of handling and, and misspending and kind of, you know, calamities that, that could have easily been avoided um, because people just didn't know how to deal with the sort of huge overnight mm. jumps. In, in So I have a slight concern that if budgets jump too quickly overnight, then, then, then money can go awry or bad mistakes can essentially happen. But I do. What I do welcome is that at least finally there's a uh, there's a realization in government that businesses need money quickly, and and people in the economy needed money quickly, and I I would think that the government will as long as the pandemic is is with us and as long as you're in a sort of series of lockdowns, there is a recognition within government, given money is as cheap as it is, that they're going to have to prime the economy 
to a pretty significant degree. Uh, and at least that's welcome because, as Jim rightly said, I think at the beginning, you know, w- when clearly Keynesian and counter cyclical policies were needed, we did the exact opposite. We were cutting and slashing all over the place. And, um, you know, when, when there was demands for stimulus package, we got was, was pretty aggressive and pretty. Um, you know what I would consider badly focused cuts, which still, you know left a very long and damaging legacy in Irish society, not just the economy. And Jim, yourself, and anything reasons to be cheerful? Part one, two, and three. Well, you know cl- clearly uh, we are in the lap of the gods for the foreseeable future. Um, what happens over the coming months will be determined by epidemiology rather than economics, and. Um, you know, I've, I've I've listened to a number of um, health experts in the United States um, on various podcasts who are quite optimistic that you know we we may get a vaccine, but more particularly that we may get the development of medicines that will deal with COVID as an illness. And perhaps Donald Trump is an example of that. I'm not sure. It's only an example of anything, Jim. Go on. <laughs> That's the. That's where the optimism would would derive from. I mean, I, I am actually optimistic, making, I suppose I'm a perennial optimist and has got me into a lot of trouble in the past. But, um, you know, I, I believe that the, the resilience of a large sector of the Irish economy in the last six months has been extraordinary. You know, there's a lot of the Irish economy doing very well. Uh, we've seen a massive build-up of personal savings, up $8 billion in the first half of this year, up over 11 billion in the last 12 months. Um, and that's, I, I, don't, I don't think it's precautionary saving. I actually think it's people have the inability to spend. People who are still earning decent money have the inability to spend because you're not going on international holidays. You're, you're not buying the new car. What's the point? You're not going out uh, eating or very much because it's difficult to do so. You're not going out buying a suit because we don't wear suits at the moment. You know what I mean? It's it's yeah, it's all yeah, of this yeah. stuff. So there there is a massive growth in household deposits and household debt is also falling sharply. Has done for the last decade. So I, I think there there is a sort of a trigger there that if we could get on top of COVID, um, you know, if we come out the other end of that. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand coming back into the system. So I'm optimistic about Ireland. My one caveat is obviously epidemiology. You know, that's obviously what would worry one. There ain't nothing we can do about that right now. Listen, on that optimistic note, we leave it. Jim Power, Danny McConnell, thank you both very much for joining us today on Budget Day. That's it for today, folks. Uh, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you all soon. All the best. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.